you're listening to an episode of the Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life podcast with your host, Kim Olver. This is Kim, and welcome to the 120th episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. If you like today's episode, be sure to leave me a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and share with your friends on social media. Just don't forget to tag me at Olver International. Today, it's my pleasure to introduce you to Dr. Cheryl Woodson. Dr. Cheryl has spent almost 40 years teaching and practicing geriatric medicine while raising a family and caring for a parent with dementia. She is committed to guiding families to give excellent elder care without killing themselves or each other, to commit to self-care and reclaim their joy to live out loud and age excellently. She is a multi-published author, speaker, consultant, and educator who walks the walk, actively creating joy in retirement. Welcome, Dr. Cheryl, and thank you so much for joining us today to have a conversation about how to navigate our lives as we age and as we sometimes assume the physical care of our parent or parents. Thanks for inviting me. Glad to be here. Terrific. Are you ready to start? I am. All right. What are some of the challenges that you see between adult children and their parents? The biggest challenge is to adjust to the shifting dynamic. There really is no role reversal. Your parents are always your parents. Even if you are taking care of them physically, they're dependent on you either physically or financially. They still deserve the respect that you gave them when you were growing up. The difficulty is that respect does not equal obedience when you're grown. And that's where the problem comes because we've always been good kids. And if we have to make a decision that they're not going to be happy with, that can be very difficult. So parents have to pull back a little bit and be less of a coach and more of a cheerleader. And adult children need to listen to what their parents say with grown up ears. You really don't need their approval. You just need to get the job done. Hmm. That sounds very interesting. Are you talking about a situation where an adult child wants to do something and their parent doesn't approve? Or are you talking about an adult child who needs to make a decision for their parent and the parent may not approve or both? Both. I was talking first about a dependent parent, like somebody who can't make a decision for themselves, or if they can make the decision, they can't carry it out because of physical issues. For example, somebody who's not safe living at home because they can't walk can't stay home even if they want to. (laughs) Nobody can hurt you like a parent. I always say that when the obstetrical nurses hand the baby to a mother, they hand exactly how to push the buttons to make them crazy also. And they'll go for it. And you have to hear it with big kid ears. Would you rather that they're angry with you or would you rather that something happens to them? And again, if the parents aren't dependent, but you've made a decision for yourself and your parents are really against it. Again, I understand. I thank you. And this is what I've decided to do. You don't need to explain. You don't need to defend yourself because you are actually grown unless you're dependent on them financially. And that is the thing that you have to be careful about because it's okay for you to ask them out of your business. It's also okay for them to ask you out of their pockets. Mm. So your independence has to be for real, not just when you feel like it. You cannot be dependent on them financially. 
That makes sense. And when you were talking about making decisions for your parents and you said, would you rather they be safe or be mad at you? It reminded me of many decisions I had to make with my teenage children. Mm -hmm. I was happy to have them mad at me if it meant they were going to be alive one more day. But the difference is that you are legally responsible for them because they're minors. Unless you have gotten legal guardianship, you're not legally responsible for your parents. And your children don't have a history of changing your diapers. (laughs) So the (laughs) the dynamic is, is very, very different when you're dealing with somebody who raised you. Because she may still see you as an eight-year-old in her head. I'm sure that's true. As you can probably tell, I've not had to caregive my parents yet. They're Mm -hmm. both still living. They're in their 80s and they're very healthy. I just spent a month with my mom and she walks every day and that woman can put her sneakers on standing up without leaning against anything. I don't know how she does it, but she can still do that. I think she may be caring for me before I end up caring for her again. But I think that gives us some information because at 40, you're playing for 80. She didn't start this at 79. My 95-year-old Aunt Terry was out here for Mother's Day, and she does a mile every morning. She didn't start that at 94. At 40, at 50, maybe at 30, you're planning how you're going to do old. That's very true. You started to talk a little bit about role reversal. Can you tell us a little bit more about what exactly, since you said it really doesn't exist, what what is role reversal then? People think it's that they become the parent because now they have to take care of the money or they're taking care of the medications or they're taking care of the house, that they have become the parent. My mother died of dementia and she did not recognize me the last three years of her life. But if I spoke too sharply, she would slap me just as fast as she would have when I was eight because she's still mother. You have to be careful how you say things. If they wouldn't take that from you when you were eight, why are they going to take that from you now? You have to be careful about, I told you to do X or can't you figure out that? I mean, I know you're frustrated and we'll talk about other ways to handle that frustration, but they are still due the respect that they earned from being on the planet that many years. That dynamic is also still there. The other thing is that when they're really sick and disabled and when they die, you grieve like a child. It's like your mommy left you in a mall alone and you're two. (laughs) You never lose that dynamic. That makes sense. How do adult children communicate with their parents more effectively? What are some recommendations that you might have? One of the recommendations is understand what it is you're asking them to do and whether it is something that really needs to be done. And one of the things I talk about is the level of care prescription. If you're talking about a medical or physical thing, you need to know whether it really is serious enough for them to do it. You can't argue whether they wear the pink shirt or the red shirt today. You can't have that level of control. It doesn't matter. You need to give them the control that they can safely have. And then for things that you really have to do, start early talking about it. What happens if What would you like if this situation happens? And people wait until the crisis. One of the greatest blessings that my mother gave me and my brother is before she got sick, 20 years before she got sick, she said, one day I may not be able to make decisions for myself. And no matter what I say at the time, understand that I raised you, I know who you are, and I trust you. Changed our lives when I had to have her car stolen because she wouldn't (laughs) stop driving. 
start early and understand what's important to them. There's a quotation that says it's not what's the matter with them. It's what matters to them. You need to have a general idea of what they consider a life that's worth living. And then as individual things come up that you haven't discussed, you still have the gestalt of what they want their life to be like. Try very hard not to wait until the crisis to have a conversation. One of the things I ask people is, for example, if they're thinking about a nursing home placement or their caregivers, I ask them to draw a line. What would be happening that would make you say you couldn't do this anymore? People talk about illness in the person they're taking care of, but they don't talk about their own need replacement or their need to go to Aruba. <laughs> you know, They don't factor in their needs. What would make this undoable? And many families can then recruit other resources and move the line. But for us, some families, the line is back behind them. They've already gotten overwhelmed. Try to ask the proactive questions. When she can't do X, what am I going to do? Or if this happens, what am I going to do? Caregiver support groups will really help you do that because there's somebody in that group who's already been there that can talk you through that point. That sounds great. How do people find out about caregiver support groups? There is a caregiver group for every illness you can think of. If you go to the American Heart Association, the Alzheimer's Disease Association, the Parkinson's, there is a page on their website for caregivers. AARP has a caregiver page. Your local area agency on aging is a really good resource for finding caregiver groups. And they can be online. They can be on the phone as well as individual. And houses of worship are beginning to step up because the house of worship hears the first cry for help. The lady who sits next to your mother in church is more likely to know whether she's bathing than her doctor will. So really understanding what the resources of whatever house of worship your parent is involved in and let them know you need help. I have five keys to caregiver survival. The third one is don't ask, don't tell, won't work. (laughs) You have to let people know you need help. You have to tell people that you need help. Be specific about what it is you need. Can you take a look at X? Can you take a look at Y? Make sure if you're a long distance caregiver, that's if the house of worship is important to your parent, somebody in that organization knows how to find you. It's really important. If that's important to them, you need to know that they can be connected to you. That's good advice. You mentioned five keys to caregiver survival. Could you share what they are more than just that one? This is something that I've been teaching for years, and it's in my book, To Survive Caregiving. The first one is don't put your head in the sand. You know how ostriches are supposed to put their head in the sand. You put your head in the sand, you present a bigger target. (laughs) So find out if you need help. If somebody is thinking that something's wrong, if it's your bossy brother-in-law or your nosy sister, just because they're on your nerves doesn't mean they're wrong. So if anybody thinks there's a problem, there's the time to go talk to physicians. And I have a whole chapter called the Physician User's Manual that will teach you how to get the information you need. The second key is take the S off your chest, step away from the kryptonite (laughs) because you are not super caregiver. You really do need help. And then the third one is don't ask, don't tell. And in that one, there's also some caveats about how specifically to ask for help. I need you to help more with mom than work, specifically what you need. And then the fourth one is, if you don't want to have to drive all the time, take your hands off the steering wheel. Again, don't micromanage. Do not major in the minor. Do you care if they have tuna salad or chicken salad? 
When caregivers ask me or they complain that nobody will help me, my question is, what did you say the last time they tried? <laughs> you know? Oh, that's a good um, question. Because you don't know why people won't help. One of the things that adult children have is that no matter how many children somebody has, it's only one or two actually doing the work. It's either the oldest daughter, the youngest daughter, or if there are no daughters, it's the oldest son's wife. (laughs) Although more and more men are becoming caregivers. And I had many male caregivers in my practice, husbands, sons, brothers doing this. You don't know why that sibling won't help. Maybe the dad who was such a good dad to you wasn't such a good dad to them. And you can't know that being raised in the same house because you have to be raised in the same relationship. It doesn't matter what actually happens. It only matters what they think happened or didn't happen because that's what drives the behavior. Rather than telling people what they should do, ask them what they can do. Did you tell? Just because you're doing it doesn't mean you're in control. If they can't do the direct care, can they get the oil changed in your car? Can they pick your kids up from choir rehearsal? Whatever they can do, value what they can do. But if people repeatedly prove unreliable, stop relying on them. Yeah. Believe them when they show you who they are. That's what my Angelou said. Believe them. And it's not a problem. If you don't have a judgment behind what they won't do, it doesn't hurt you. The problem is not that your brother won't help. It's that you keep expecting him to. That's why it Mm -hmm. hurts. Mm -hmm. So that's really important. And the fifth key is about self-care. It's to do what flight attendants tell you to do in the case of an air emergency. Put your mask on first. I had a 58-year-old caregiver drop dead and leave two 80-year-old people here. We think that heart attack came out of nowhere, but it didn't because she hadn't had her blood pressure checked. She didn't know she was diabetic. She wasn't taking care of herself. Another part of that is taking care of you, your physical health, your financial health, your emotional health, and your spiritual health. And there's a section on each of those in the book and on your relationships and your children. If you have to make a decision whether you're going to do something that helps your children or do something that supports your parent, you have to choose the kids because their future is not fixed. And, you know, the Khalil Gibran book, The Prophet. There's a section on children, and it says that parents are the bow. The creator bends it, and the arrows go forward. Time doesn't go backwards. My mother tried to walk out of the University of Chicago Hospital, which is at 56th and Cottage, to smoke when my 18-month-old daughter was in the hospital. And I had promised that I would never have to leave my daughter alone, that she'd never wake up and not see somebody. But my mother couldn't communicate well enough, and University of Chicago's in the hood. She might have gotten killed. I decided that my daughter would be scared, but she'd be safe because the nurses were right there. And I went and got my mother. I sent my mother back to Philadelphia to let my cousins take care of her that same day because there were more of them than there were of me. I never wanted to be in a position to have to choose between my parent and my daughter again. Yeah, that would be a very hard choice. Cheryl, you mentioned a chapter. I'm assuming that's in a book. You mentioned a book. Could you tell us about the book you're referring to? And I think you said in your bio that you're a multi-published author. So tell us about everything. Well, To Survive Caregiving, A Daughter's Experience, A Doctor's Advice, was first published in 2006. My mother died in 2003. She gave me that book. That book just came up out of my heart, out of my mouth, and onto the page. I had been giving little pieces of it in presentations, but I wrote that book in 10 days when I decided to sit down and write it. 
it is a doctor-daughter perspective. I can give you the inside information and explain all of these complex concepts, but it's going to be real. It's not going to be ivory tower musings because I've had to do this, or I'm bringing in stories of patients and families that I've worked with. Each idea, each topic has a case study that's true. The names have been changed to protect the guilty, but (laughs) (laughs) enough to protect anonymity. The second edition just came out in November and it's completely expanded and updated I only wanted to write one new chapter, a chapter called Another Kind of Widow for people who are married to folks with dementia, because you're not gone, but that's not your husband anymore, is it? So how do you deal with that? How do you lose somebody and they're still right in front of you? That's a grief that nobody can understand except a spouse. And I think that adult children need to be careful about the healthy spouse and make sure they don't lose both of them. But as I thought of other chapters to put in the book, I realized it had to be a second book because to survive caregiving is an overall discussion of caregiving and how to navigate the healthcare system and things like that. So I wrote a book called The Doctor is In, answering your questions about how to survive caregiving. And these are questions people asked me over 40 years. And after a while, I knew. (laughs) What do you do when mom gives all her money to Pookie and you don't have money to buy her medicine? What do you do? What do you do if she goes to the casinos every weekend, asks you to pay her rent every month, and you got two kids in college? What do you do? And there's actually solutions for this, things that have worked. So the doctor is in each chapter is a question somebody wrote. When I finished the book, I pulled together a focus group of my dyed-in-the-wool caregivers, my caregivers who I knew for 20 years and remembered how they did it. They didn't change anything. Because I was saying, well, these are the chapters. What did I miss? They took me deeper, even deeper than I had already gone. So I gave them their own chapter. I called them the care warriors. (laughs) And the things that they brought up, like if somebody is working, and they have dementia, you want to tell their boss that they have dementia because any productivity lapse or any other problems need to be seen as healthcare issues rather than performance issues. If you get terminated for performance, a lot of the health resources don't kick in. A lot of the disability Mm -hmm. doesn't kick in. So if you tell them there's a medical problem, they can decide how they're going to adjust the responsibilities or what they're going to do, but it's not being terminated for cause. And it opens up a whole different way of supporting yourself. And I had never thought about that. One of my caregivers told me that. Big distinction. Good to know. That's the Care Warriors chapter. They are so wonderful and so bright. They're warriors. They've been through this battle and they have so much information and support. This is why caregiver support groups are so important because you will meet folks who are farther along the path than you are who can help you, but you'll also realize that you're farther along the path than some people just coming in and you realize you may not be doing as bad as you thought because you do have something to give. So it's very, very supportive on both ends. Beautiful. How many books was that? Did you tell me about? That's two. Well, that's three because the first edition of To Survive Caregiving, A Daughter's Experience, A Doctor's Advice, then the second edition, and The Doctor is In. I almost lost my daughter between 2014 and 2015. She was very, very deathly ill. And I wrote some affirmations and plastered them all over her hospital walls to try to keep her going. And as I wrote them, I heard them almost for the first time. And so if I knew this, why did I have this problem? 
There are all these things that we hear and we know, but we're too busy hustling to stop and listen to really and do something about it. Or we're running so it won't catch us. Mm -hmm. My brother's girlfriend did the photography. So Dear Lauren Love Mom, 31 Days of Affirmations for My Daughter, for Myself and for You came out for Mother's Day last year. And it's a photograph, beautiful nature photographs. And then these affirmations. And the very first one is, I am worth it just as I am. Because if you don't believe that, nothing else works. And there's also one about deserving a loving relationship. It's like, I don't need a man to pay my bills. I need a man to pay attention. That's right. That's right. right. It's just those kinds of pieces of wisdom that I got from my mother and my grandmother and my girlfriend's mothers and grandmothers, but really hadn't percolated with, you know, I hadn't sat there and let it percolate through until I was giving it to my daughter. And the process of writing it healed some scars I didn't even remember I had, didn't even notice. Unfortunately, the pandemic hit when I was publishing that book. So I was doing virtual book signings so many virtual women's conferences and really seeing people's lives change because they were asking themselves some questions they've been afraid to ask. These sessions were safe sessions where people could say whatever they wanted. They asked for a workbook. So the workbook came out this February. It's a workbook and a journal because I ask questions about each affirmation that really make you think. It holds that mirror up so you can see yourself. And the last question is always, what do you need? Who or what can help you? Because we're not in this world alone. Humans are pack animals. You need to figure out how to pull your team together to do anything for yourself. That's also important because women are holding themselves to a level of caregiving from their mother and grandmother's years. Even if your mom was working, she wasn't in the C-suite. You're not clocking out at five o'clock and you're coming home and reading reports and it's completely different. I tell women who are business women, do you make the coffee at your office? Have those groceries delivered? Why are you going to the grocery store on your way home from work and cooking is, come on. You need to delegate and it's okay. You don't have to kill yourself to show that you love somebody. You just need to get the job done. Even if the women are not executive women, many of them are working two jobs or working long hours just to make ends meet. And we're trying to do it the way our mothers did it. So that doesn't work. The other thing is I write fiction under the pseudonym Taria Robbins. And the reason for that is my 95-year-old Aunt Terry is my heart. She's my favorite person on the planet. She came to visit me from Philadelphia on Mother's Day. And we did a mile every morning because that's what she does. And her name is Terry. And so I stole her name. And then I wanted to be as close as possible to Nora Roberts, who's a famous women's fiction author. And now there's no bookstores. But anyway, that was the plan. And I wrote a novel called What the Mirror Sees. The tag is you can pretend, but you can't hide from what the mirror sees. It's pure mind candy for smart women. It's a romance, but nobody's waiting for Prince Charming. When he gallops up, you're in the castle with your name on the deed. (laughs) (laughs) There's other things that are going on. And it's all about women who have spent their lives taking care of everybody else, making sure everybody else was okay, and forgot what their original dream was. And Mm. now as they're approaching 50, because my heroines all start around 50 and I take them into their 70s, they have to learn how to put themselves up higher on that to-do list and that that's okay. Yeah. And it's just so much fun. That's the novel. I'm working on the second novel. So that's six. You are a writer. That's awesome. I I love it. I love it. 
I have written four books too, and uh, I have no novels. And I, I haven't aspired to write novels yet, but I like to read them. And Nora Roberts is one of my faves. I especially like her sci-fi under her own pseudonym, J.D. Robb, right. which is fun, and total fantasy, right? Everybody wants a husband like Rourke, but he's really not real. <laughs> and they, uh, there's too many people died <laughs> before yeah. they got together. I don't know. Yeah, but there's she, a lot. She of really that. is very prolific. The difference between my writing romance and some of the other romance writers is that I'm not writing series. We don't have to stay in Virgin River for 12 books. I also self-publish, so I don't have anybody telling me what genre mm -hmm. I or right. how I do right. sequels. All of my heroines are 50 plus and dealing with life, the real things that we deal with as women of a certain age. My marketing is all fall colors and I'm getting ready to put up a new website for Taria. I just did the voiceover for it. And it says that, did you know that when a tree is young, those beautiful autumn colors are already in the leaf under the green, but let that leaf get some age on it. And as the green recedes, those glorious autumn colors come out and they are evidence of chemicals that have been in the leaf from the beginning, protecting it from disease and harsh conditions. And isn't that like grown women? We are no sure longer green, <laughs> but we have endured and we have the battle stripes that shows we had the stuff to endure and we are magnificent. That's the tag and pull in line for the website that's coming up. And my logo is a lady who is walking on a ball, juggling, being a wife, being a mother, being a daughter, being a boss. And at her feet is a ball that's broken that says me. And she's not looking at that one. She's looking to keep everybody else up. And that's what we do. So that's what the fiction is about. And I have one coming. I'm working on it. Fiction is harder for me than nonfiction. Really? I've put out four nonfiction since I did the last fiction. So now I have to really make myself do it because I already have another nonfiction in mind. It's called Wild Women Don't Sing the Blues. It's an anthology of women who have survived and excelled in male-oriented careers, yeah. but still women. You know, didn't have to turn yourself into a man. That's what I love. I started a book on leadership about being a woman and really maintaining your female qualities in your leadership because a woman trying to pretend that she's a man with all those male qualities is not happy with who she is because she has to pretend she can't be herself. Then I realized that Brene Brown really wrote that book, so I didn't need to write it anymore, so I let it go. But the but gold beauty of being over 50, I'm 66. The beauty is you say whatever you want. I was in a board meeting. We were interviewing a new candidate and he said, I don't think you want another white man on the board. And it's like, oh, so you woke? Is that the story? And what I said to him was I looked at him very incredulously and I said, we don't care that you're white. We don't care that you're male. All we need is your head and your hands. And then I asked him a question. It's like, you can say whatever you want because you're old. Who cares? You know, what are they going to do to you? <laughs> Well, it's true. And I love that your fiction is about strong, empowered women, because that's who you are. That's who I am. That's who my friends that I hang out with are. And there is a real target market of women who have been ignored and marginalized, who need some heroines. And women who are getting stuff done on the outside, but the whole imposter syndrome thing, you're sitting here waiting if somebody's going to figure yeah, it out. Yeah, yeah. That's and right. And letting people understand that it's okay to be who you are, whatever you are, as long as you're being authentic, do it. And also learning that life is a team sport and you may have to bench some people, 
That's true. The fact that somebody's known you a certain number of years does not make them your friend. Right. Or the teammate you want carrying you into the future. Exactly. And they may have been for a while and they were there for a reason and a season. But I no longer keep in my space people who don't love me. And love is a verb to me. You know, they mm-hmm. don't show that they care about me. I'm not talking about romantically, but, you know, somebody who considers me as well as I consider them. My approach is, there's what, six billion people on the planet. You got to lose a couple of them. Oh, well. Yeah. 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 I call it pruning. I mean, it really is pruning. It's like you're elevating, you're moving in a direction. And there's people who don't want you to do that. And they'll try to pull you back to who you were when right. they cared about you. And, and that, cause that's what they need. They need you to right. be that way. And for caregivers, it's often difficult because people will tell you what they think you should do. There's a chapter in the book called show up or shut up. If they're not going to help you, they don't get to talk about it. They don't get to tell you that you should retire or that you shouldn't retire. They can counsel, they can brainstorm with you, you know, go over your pro and cons, Excel spreadsheets, but they don't (laughs) get to tell you what to do unless they're going to walk that line with you. I was a caregiver for my husband until he died. From my perspective, I felt it at the time and I still feel it a real privilege to be able to be a caregiver for someone else and to even be there at the moment of their crossing over. Had my head on my mother's chest when she took her last breath. There's nothing more wondrous and more wonderful than being in physical contact with somebody when they take that step. Yeah. That to me is showing really love. I'm going to love you to death. Yes. The fact that I can't cure you, the fact that you're no longer going to meet my needs, none of that matters because I'm walking with you Yep. where you're going. I'm very glad. But millennials, you're talking about young caregivers. Millennials are stepping into caregiving. Gen Xers are stepping into caregiving earlier than the baby boomers did. And it's not just seniors. The pandemic brought all of this right into the view because everybody was stuck together and you couldn't get away from it. Or you were separated and you couldn't figure it out. A lot of millennials who went home for financial reasons, you know, parents had resources, they moved back into the home, realized that mom and dad are getting older. Who's going to take care of their autistic brother? Or mom's getting older. Can she really keep taking care of grandma? They saw it in ways they didn't. And this is something else that adult children must do. You have to make your caregiving easier for your kids than yours is for your parents. I gave my kids their advanced directive forms, their living wills, power of attorney when they were 18, because that's when the state of Illinois thinks you're grown. And it needs to be a right of adult passage, like registering the vote. We just talk about who would make decisions if we couldn't. Do it at Thanksgiving when everybody is around. So the older folks don't think you're trying to kill them and the younger folks don't think you're trying to make them old. This is just what we do. And we talk about this because if you can talk about it early when it happens, you're not grieving and trying to figure out what to do. You know what to do. Trying to have those conversations with your parents as early as you can. And they may not like it. I like playing to their powers. Like you you don't want me making this, right? You better tell me what you want me to do. Making sure that you give them the power that they need. I need you to direct me right now. How would you want that done? It doesn't happen the first conversation. It may not happen the 50th conversation, but you have to just keep gently trying to figure it out and setting it up so that your kids do not have the problems that you have. 
Yeah, that's brilliant advice. I want to give you the opportunity to add anything that you may want to say that we didn't already cover. The most important thing is that you are the primary resource. You take care of the house, you take care of the car, you take care of the money, you got to take care of your caregiver. If you want to be a great caregiver, you need to go to Aruba every year, you know, just something to take care of yourself. And I hope that people will find the books on Amazon. It's To Survive Caregiving, The Doctor is In, and then Dear Lauren, Love Mom, and The Workbook. And the novel, What the Mirror Sees by Taria Robbins, is also on Amazon. And they can reach me through my website. It's drsherylwoodson.com. Starting in the fall, I'm going to be putting up some online courses about caregiving and about several other things. Right now, I don't have a specific event coming up, but if you sign into my community on my website or like me on Facebook, you know, my Dr. Cheryl Facebook page, you'll get all of those updates as they come out. That's terrific. I'll be sure to put your website in the show notes. Just for people listening, it's Cheryl with a C, not an S. That's right. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today, Cheryl. I know you have an incredibly busy schedule with all that writing that you're doing. You could be spending your time doing a lot of other things. So I'm happy that you chose to spend it with us today. Thanks well, so thank much. you for inviting me. And there's nothing more important than helping women live out loud and age excellently. I couldn't agree more. Thanks so much. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and remember to leave a review and share with your connections on social media. I also hope you'll join me next week when I'll be interviewing a parenting coach from Nigeria and Kechi Emmanuel Oyegre. I'm looking forward to it. Talk with you then. This has been another thought-provoking episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. To listen to past episodes, please visit our website at lifeequalschoices.com or listen wherever you download your podcast. And don't forget, remember to subscribe.